Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 16. <clears throat> Genesis 16, as we continue our study through this book. We'll look at the whole chapter. saw on television the other day that uh, yet another person is writing a biography of Princess Diana. The author wants to dispel all the myths about her, he says. He wants to present a more realistic picture of an often self-centered and even self-destructive woman. That seems to be the trend these days. We build heroes with large doses of media hype, and then we destroy them by the tell-all uh, accounts of their closest associates. Isn't that kind of how it works? Well, the Bible is different in the way it deals with its heroes. From the beginning, it speaks the truth. We learn of great people when they do great things. We see how human they are when they fail miserably. But all the while, the scriptures simply tell us the truth. Sometimes great failures and great successes side by side. And of course they would tell us the truth, for this is the word of God, and the point is not to build some human heroes at all. The point is to reveal God to us, not man. <clears throat> well, today we come to one of those passages where the heroes of faith don't look very heroic. Here we learn how really faithless a man of faith can be. But here in the midst of human failings, God again reveals his faithfulness and his compassion on such frail humans. Well, let me read the chapter. It's a familiar story. I'm sure you'll recognize it as we read. Let me, let me read it for you. Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, <coughs> The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms and now she knows that she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarah, she said. And the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants, they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, now you are now with child and you will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. She said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. 
It's still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. There are endless things we could talk about in this chapter. Let me just focus our attention on two great truths that I think this sets before us. The first is an exhortation. Here it is. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. I read somewhere this week. I couldn't find it. I looked for it again. But as I recall, 67% of self-acclaimed born-again Christians believe that somewhere in the Bible... It actually says, God helps those who help themselves. Please tell me you're not one of that number. The Bible does not say such things. But in reading this account, we might get an idea that Abram and Sarah thought that uh, that they maybe were part of that 67%. For if if anywhere in the Bible, here we certainly have an an illustration, a a testimony to the failure of of self-help religion. I'll help myself, and that's how God will work out his plan in me. Here we see that Abram and Sarah did not do the very thing that our text is teaching us, I think. They failed to wait on the Lord. Why? How do we explain their failure? Perhaps if we could know what they did wrong, perhaps if we could see what set them up for such a failure, we could avoid making the same mistakes. Well, let me suggest a few things here that may have contributed to their failure. The first is this, that the waiting just got long and hopeless. They, they used to wait on the Lord. It just got really long and hopeless. According to verse 3, they had been living in this land, clinging to God's promise with nothing to show for it for 10 years already. And the promise of having children looked pretty dismal when God made the promise, let alone now. At the end of the passage, in that last verse, we're told that Abram was 86 years old when when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. That means Abram's 85 years old and he's not getting any younger. And so sure enough, when the wait was so long and the situation looked so hopeless, their faith began to wear thin. And in verse 2, Sarah begins to blame God. The Lord has kept me from having children. Well, I guess that's true. The Lord is in control of all things. But you see what's going on here? She's not just acknowledging God's sovereignty in all things. She's beginning to feel sorry for herself. Beginning to see herself as a victim. A victim of God who has asked her to wait too long. And so she begins to look for another way, some self-help way, to bring about God's promises. She turns away from waiting on the Lord and begins to make it happen herself. Sounds strangely familiar, doesn't it? Poor me. God hasn't dealt fairly with me. He hasn't come through with the things he promised the things I expected. I deserve better than this. I'm tired of waiting on him. I'll do it myself. Oh, but the scriptures say, wait on the Lord. 
To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Wait on the Lord. No matter how long, no matter how hopeless, wait on the Lord. So there's another explanation of what went wrong here. Abram listened to his wife. Now there are plenty of times when a man needs to be listening to his wife. We have way too many bullheaded men who just disregard their very best advisor, the suitable advisor that God put in their own household, and they just feel like they don't need to listen. They know it all. In fact, that's such a widespread problem. I'm tempted to not even mention this, but the text does mention this, that Abram listened to his wife. That was part of what caused the problem. Here the problem was that Sarah got a bad idea, and Abram listened to her. Sarah suggested that she just give her maidservant to Abram and have children through Hagar. And Abram thought that was all right. Okay. The one female scholar I read on Genesis every week, a wonderful writer named Joyce Baldwin, one of my very best commentaries, she says it quite pointedly, Abram's compliance is, remiss, is reminiscent of that of, of Adam. Even in so important a matter, it's a case of, as you say, dear, and once again, the result is a dis disruption of relationships. Some years ago, Dr. Larry Crabb wrote a book entitled The Silence of Adam. In that book, he makes the point that Adam was apparently standing there in the garden watching the temptation going down. And he didn't say a word. He just went along with Eve. Well, in this book, Larry Crabb makes the same point about Abram, who chose to be silent, oblivious to what was happening before his eyes. Crabb writes, Just as Eve gave forbidden fruit to her husband, so Sarah gave her handmaid to Adam, and he took her. Abram was silent and passive, and his silence still speaks 4,000 years later. I tell you, men, God did not call you to be the head of your home so that you could bully your wife. That's despicable. But neither has he called you to be a wimp who doesn't have the courage to take the reins of leadership and make sure that your family will walk in godliness, even if you have to endure the sharp tongue of your wife to do so. Enough of pushing the spiritual leadership off on your wife. God didn't call her to lead, he called you to lead. But it so often gets pushed off on her because you know, and she knows, and the kids know that she's better prepared than you are. If you're ignorant of God's word, of course you don't dare speak up. But if that's the case, it's time to get prepared because God lays the responsibility at your feet, dear brother. And as Abram found, when the chips are down, and when everything looks discouraging and hopeless, it is hard to continue to wait on the Lord. Especially when the temptation to do otherwise comes from the person you love and trust the very best. 
It's much easier to just shrug and say, whatever you say, honey. But God's Word teaches us to wait. The Lord is my portion. I will wait for Him. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. You are the God of my salvation. I will wait for you all day long. Oh, there's one other huge explanation, though. Not just that it was a long time, and not just that the temptation came from someone so precious to Abram. One more huge explanation of Abram and Sarah's failure. <laughs> Their disobedience was legal. Their disobedience was legal. From where we stand, this looks like a strange procedure. Give your servant to your wife. Sounds like polygamy. I think they put you in jail for that. I don't think that's legal in this land. But for Abram and Sarah, this was not illegal. In fact, this was a normal, socially acceptable custom. Some of the ancient tablets that we've discovered, the Code of Hammurabi, the Nuzi tablets, the Alalak tablets, and the Mari tablets, which all from that general area from within two or three hundred years of the time of Abraham, all of these provide a basis of legality for exactly this kind of procedure. If a woman could not have children, she could build her family by having her maidservant bear children to her husband. And that's exactly what Sarah said in verse 2. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Perfectly acceptable, legal, okay with everybody. Problem was, it wasn't God's way. God's design was one man and one woman for life. And God's promises were made to Abraham in the context of his marriage to Sarah. And the fact that throughout the Old Testament God works in spite of polygamy going on does not mean that God sanctions that he never has and he never does. But you see, it makes it hard to be faithful when it is legal and expected that you will not be. Dr. Ian Dugard writes of Abram and Sarah, all parties involved were consenting adults, so why not? The idea seems so reasonable as Satan's shortcuts always do. And here, dear people, is where Christians fail miserably to this very day. How many practices today do we face that are just like what Abram and Sarah faced? Not the same practice, but like it because they are legal, and everyone does it, and no one thinks ill of it, though God forbids it. For he knows how disastrous it is for his people. At the risk of getting to meddling, let me talk about some. Sex before marriage, for example. Hey, everyone does that. Every couple lives together on a trial basis, right? Except that God says no. For God knows that those sexual relations form a sacred bond that is more than you bargained for outside of marriage. 
And not, not to mention the fact that sometimes that produces a child. And God knows that the guilt and distrust that comes from that, the, 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 the distrust that comes from you didn't love me enough, you didn't have the integrity enough to wait, that will torpedo a marriage for years to come. It may be okay with everybody else, but God says, no, wait on the Lord. Do it his way. Same thing applies to affairs outside of marriage. Commonly accepted, everybody does it. Generally legal, practiced in our culture everywhere. Hey, you can't control who you fall in love with, right? How could something that feels so right be so wrong? This must be of God. It's such a beautiful experience. Surely you have a right to some happiness. But God says no. No matter how passionately you're in love, God says no, no matter how legal it is, no matter how normal it is, God says no, no matter how much everybody else is doing it, God says no, for he knows that's not where real happiness is gonna be found. He knows how this is gonna ruin your family, it's gonna ruin your life, it's gonna ruin your spouse, it's gonna ruin your children, it's gonna ruin your grandchildren, it's gonna bring trouble to your extended family, it's gonna destroy things about your business, your relationship to your church, nothing but trouble and heartache everywhere. You say, well maybe nobody will ever know. But God knows. And he knows the burden of guilt you'll carry and how you will wish you could wipe that stain off for your life for the rest of your days. Oh, your friends may say, go for it. Everybody does that. And your lawyer may say, you have a right to do whatever you want. And God says, stop. Stop. This will destroy you, my child. No matter how long and how hard, wait on the Lord. Do it his way. Or one more example, legal but not moral, abortion. It's got to be the best example we can give. What an easy solution to a terrible mess, an unwanted, unexpected pregnancy. And the Supreme Court of the United States has said you have a right. You have a constitutional right to do that if you please. Indeed, if you have such a pregnancy, I can just about guarantee that your boyfriend and probably many of your girlfriends and maybe even your parents may be pressing you to fix it. Just get rid of this. So easy. It's so legal. It's so acceptable. Except that God says no. No. For he knows what's on the other side. Not just the life of that child taken, but the sense of guilt and shame every time the subject comes up. The years of even decades of inner agony every time you remember the child that should have been. The unspeakable regret if that ends up being the only child you ever conceived. The constant reminder of what you've thrown away when you do have other children and you watch them grow and learn and realize you denied that to your first child. And the weariness of hiding your shame for decades. You see, what the culture says is right, what you have a legal right to do, and what may seem to be the easy solution at the time, is no good unless it's God. Oh, they're endless examples. We have so much to learn from Abram and Sarah's great mistake. 
It doesn't matter how long God takes. It doesn't matter how hopeless it looks right now. It doesn't matter where the temptation comes from, if it comes from your best friend or even your dear husband or wife. It doesn't even matter if something is legal and accepted and expected. God expects us to take him at his word, to believe his promises even when they are obviously impossible, to do what he says even when it hurts like crazy, and to wait on him. I don't say it's not agonizing. The scripture is full of the agony of waiting on the Lord. I think of Psalm 13. Let me read it. How long, O Lord, will you forgive me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? And every day have sorrow in my heart. How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I've overcome him. My foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, he has been good to me. Out of the depths I cry to you, Psalm 137. Wait, wait on the Lord. Then there's a second great truth that we learn from this text. A wonderful assurance, not just an exhortation. And that's this, that God cares about your trouble. God cares about your trouble. <sighs> Satan's shortcuts always look so inviting in the time of need. But the results are predictably bitter. Shortcuts always leave a trail of wounded, broken lives behind. And Abraham and Sarah's sinful shortcut was no exception. Consider what happened to Hagar. <clears throat> you see, Sarah didn't really care about Hagar. She didn't care about Hagar. She wanted to use her as a breeder to give herself a child. That's all. And when Hagar became pregnant and began to feel like she was something special, Sarah blamed it on Abram and demanded the right to subjugate her to the position of a slave again where she belonged. Once again, Abram caved in and said, whatever, dear. And that's exactly what she did. She mistreated Hagar so severely that Hagar finally became bitter and fled for her life. Sarah didn't care about Hagar. Shortcuts produce broken people. Or think about Abram. Abram didn't care about her either. Oh, he obviously was sexually attracted to her for the moment. But he didn't love her as a man is to love his wife. She was only his, his wife's servant to be used. And when the tensions arose, 
He was perfectly willing to abandon her to the vindictive hands of Sarah. Okay, yeah, do whatever you please. Now the truth is, Hagar was a nobody here. Someone to be used for other people's advantage. There was no concern for her life. There was no concern for her feelings. Why, who would think that a woman would, could be asked to give herself to a man and to have a child with him and then somehow be detached from any connection to that man or that child? No one was listening to Hagar. No one even noticed Hagar. No one cared about her trouble. Except God saw her distress and heard her cry. For God always cares about the trouble of the oppressed. Hagar's on her way home. Verse, verse 7 tells us she was on the road to Shur. Shur is in the northeastern part of Egypt. Hagar is an Egyptian. Like so many other people, even to this day, when life all falls apart, I guess I'll go back home. And she headed back home. Ah, but God met her on the way. This is the Bible's very first mention of the angel of the Lord, but at a spring there on the road, the angel of the Lord appeared to her. It's always kind of an interesting discussion about who this is, this angel of the Lord. Is this just some angelic being, or is this God the Son appearing prior to the time he was born in the world as Jesus? Well, Hagar certainly thought she understood who this was. She understood this to be the Lord himself. In verse 13, she says, it says that she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. And then comments, I have seen the one who sees me. And in verse 14, she calls the well, Beer Lai Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me. El Roy, God who sees. Can you imagine this? A foreign slave woman at odds with her mistress. A nobody by any measure. Totally without protection. Totally without concern from her mistress or her master. But the living God sees her, cares about her trouble, and appears to her to comfort her. That's how the Lord is. He still cares about the outcast. He still hears the cries of the broken. He still cares about the nobodies of this world. He cares about your trouble. Oh, but God didn't just see her. He made a wonderful promise to her. Look at verse 11 and 12. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child and you will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. 
He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility toward all his brothers. In the verse before, the angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. Well, that sounds familiar. Sounds like the promises made to Abram, except for the part about being a blessing to the whole world. This son that he promises, that God promises her, will be somewhat of a wild man who will be in the face of his brethren, have some hostility toward his brethren. But God says, but nonetheless, I'm giving you this son and you will name him Ishmael. Ishmael means God hears. The son will be a reminder of this day throughout the ages that I have seen you in your distress, I have heard your cry, and I give you a son named God hears. Don't ever forget it. God cares about your trouble. Oh, but there was one catch. God said, I want you to go back to Sarah and submit to her. Oh, no, Lord. Yeah, go back to Sarah. Does this mean everything's going to be okay now? No, everything's not okay. The scars of sin don't just go away. Some of them you live with for life. But you see, there's nothing for Hagar back in Egypt. The promises of God are in Abram's household. Go back where the promises of God are. I'll go with you. I care. Raise a little boy and call him God hears every time you call his name. Oh, it was undoubtedly difficult for her to return. She would have to eat humble pie. There was no guarantee that she would not be mistreated again. In fact, she was. But she went with God's promise, the God who sees. She went knowing that God cares about her trouble. This morning I would tell you the same things. Some of you may be at the end of your rope. You want to quit and go away. God has called you to return to the place of his assignment. The home he put you in. The church he put you in. Yes, it's often hard. No, all the troubles don't go away. There is no perfect situation. We live with all kinds of wounds and scars. But the path of faithful obedience, the path of trusting the Lord and doing what he says, is always the path of blessing. In our mind, we can always justify quitting. I'm going back to Egypt. Oh, but here, where God puts us, is where we will find forgiveness. Here's where we will find the restoration of our souls. Here's where we find hope for tomorrow. Here's where life has meaning. Not back in Egypt, which is always in the Bible a picture of going back to the world. No, in the place of God's assignment, we have the confidence. God is able to care for me here. He cares about my trouble. And so Hagar went back. We're actually not told that here, but we know it from other passages. And what we do see here is in verse 15, we are told that the son was born and Abram gave him the name Ishmael. Abram didn't know God had given that name to this boy. 
except that Hagar went back and told him. Indeed, told him, I'm sure, of all what God had said to her and of God's great compassion, of God's promise, of the name that God hears. All about how God cared about her trouble. You see, here at the end of the story, it seems to be Hagar who has learned to walk by faith, doesn't it? Here she's living in the wilderness of Sarah's home. Here she's undergoing continued oppression, clinging to the promises God made her, raising her son, claiming God's promise that he cares about my trouble. Every day in the midst of the trouble, waiting, waiting on the Lord. I don't know what this has to teach you. I'm sure it has a little something different to teach each of us. On the one hand, there's this great exhortation to be patient, to be enduring in our faith, to wait on the Lord. Only in the experience of doing that, in the middle of the waiting and the trusting and the resting, when all hope is gone, only in living all of that out do we ever fully really know what that means. That's easy to say. That's hard to live. Some of you may be there right now. If so, I, I, I exhort you, no shortcuts. Be still before God. Wait on Him. On the other hand, this passage gives us great comfort for no matter how miserable our situation may be. Here we learn how God cares about our trouble. His concern is not dependent on us being somebody special. Hagar was nobody special. She's the most nobody in the whole store. It's not dependent on our circumstances being so wonderful, for her circumstances were miserable and they continue to be. No, God cares about miserable nobodies in bad circumstances. His compassion is based on nothing less than his own grace. The grace that has come in Jesus. You see, in a very real sense, what Hagar came to learn was the same things that we know today, the same things that we confess, the things we sing about. I think of the song, No One Understands Like Jesus. Let me just read it in closing. This is what she learned. No one understands like Jesus. He's a friend beyond compare. Meet him at the throne of mercy. He's waiting for you there. No one understands like Jesus. Every woe he sees and feels Tenderly he whispers comfort, the broken heart he heals. No one understands like Jesus when the foes of life assail. You should never be discouraged. Jesus cares. He will not fail. No one understands like Jesus when you falter on the way. Though you fail him, sadly fail him, he will pardon you today. No one understands like Jesus when the days are dark and grim. No one is so near, so dear as Jesus. Cast your every care on him. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for this part of your word, this familiar story that is so hard for us to understand because it's from a culture so far away. And yet when we think about it, it's just as relevant as uh, today's struggles. Lord, we too need to know 
to wait on you. And the truth is, Abraham and Sarah waited a lot longer and a lot more faithfully than most of us have. Teach us, Lord. And Lord, we somehow get the idea that you care about the beautiful people. And we all know that we're not. Thank you for the reminder that you care about the broken and the troubled. People in misery. People whose lives are falling apart. Well, Lord, I pray that uh, you'd give us grace to turn our longings to you. To abandon any other thought that there's another helper like you. To wait on you. To rest in your care. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.